0: Good. Thank you for letting me get comfortable. It's nice here, isn't it? It's good to be here this morning. Welcome to any of you that are visiting us. It's really good to have you with us. For those of you uh, that that are with us regularly, you'll know that we've been looking at Nehemiah over recent weeks. So today we're going to go back a couple of centuries, and we're going to look at a person called Habakkuk. And if you want to look at the book of Habakkuk in your Bible, you'll find it 20 or 30 pages or so back from Matthew in the New Testament, or 20 or 30 pages on from Daniel in the Old, or otherwise you can just look in the index, and that's perfectly fine. Alright, so in the book of Nehemiah, we see some of the exiles returning to Jerusalem um, from a period of um, exile in Babylon. Well, the book of Habakkuk is written at the other end of that particular chapter of the, of, of the Israelites' history. So in Nehemiah, we're celebrating God's deliverance as the exiles return to Jerusalem. Um, in Habakkuk, we're looking forward in time to God's coming judgment, to the destruction of Jerusalem By the Babylonians and to the coming time of exile. And Habakkuk is prophesying about this coming um, judgment, but it's an unusual prophecy because, unlike most of the other prophecies in the Bible, which are addressed to a particular audience, um, this prophecy doesn't appear to be addressed to anyone. Habakkuk didn't go to the king and warn him what was going to happen, Habakkuk didn't go on the street corners and warn the people and tell them that they had to repent. The book of Habakkuk is actually, it's more like the the story of one man's interaction with God. It does foretell events that are going to happen, but it's much more than that. It relates the complaint that Habakkuk brought to God, his hurt, his confusion, his frustration. And it tells of the unexpected answer that he got from God. But we see then Habakkuk went back to God, still not satisfied. And God answered again. And this time it's as though the lights come on in Habakkuk's mind. Something clicks. And although the circumstances haven't changed at all, Habakkuk has. And he responds with an amazing declaration of trust in God. Now, though this story took place a very long time ago in a very different context than the one we find ourselves in today there's a great deal in this prophecy in this book which is very relevant to us now and it may be that some of you here today wonder why it is that we spend time looking at the bible it's very old and ancient book we believe that through this bible god teaches us about himself he tells us about how we can have a relationship with him and so it is worth giving time to and that's what we're going to do this morning so in broad terms what's the issue here well, first off, Habakkuk is deeply upset and troubled by the spiritual moral state of the nation. And I'm sure that many of you will remember that since the time of David, there have been a number of kings. And during that time, the people had alternated. At one time, they were following God, and then they would turn their backs on him. And they oscillated between these two positions. But overall, the trend was downwards. And by the time of Habakkuk, things were in a pretty bad state. Violence and evil were rampant. The wicked prospered. And beyond their borders, the Babylonians were on the move. They were going systematically, destroying country after country and, 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 and taking the people captive. And despite the cries of the righteous in Israel, God appeared to be silent. And it's this silence which I think lied at the, lay at the heart of Habakkuk's first complaint. Habakkuk couldn't understand why God was apparently standing by and allowing evil and suffering to exist. Why in the face of evil, God seemed to stay silent. And if we draw back from the historical context, I think we can see the the kind of questions that Habakkuk was asking are actually very contemporary. The issues that he was struggling with are the ones that we ourselves often struggle with. We might look across to Syria, for example, and the dreadful human suffering that's being caused by that civil war. And we can ask, why doesn't our God, who we proclaim to be good, uh, who who we say is sovereign, who we believe is all-powerful, why doesn't he intervene? I'm sure many of you will have heard people ask the question, there can't be, or make the statement, there can't be a, a God because there is so much suffering in the world. And perhaps you found it difficult to respond to that. Why would a good God allow evil to continue? And then we face our own times of trial. And we can struggle to reconcile a God who says he loves us with a God who sometimes seems to withdraw at the very time we feel we need him most. To be silent at the times of our greatest distress. Well, these were exactly the same kind of questions and issues that Habakkuk wrestled with. So let's go back to him and have a look at the record of his interaction with God and see what lessons we can learn. So we're going to start by reading the first verses of Habakkuk, chapter 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me look at iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralysed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. How long, O Lord, Habakkuk complained? How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? How long will you idly sit by? Seeing all this evil, injustice and violence, and you will not save. I can see all this destruction and strife. I can see the law isn't being kept, the wicked are all around us. Can't you see it? Why don't you do something? Is there any one of us who hasn't prayed that kind of prayer? God, where are you? How long must I cry out before you'll hear me? I need you, but you seem so far away. Have you forgotten me? Are you hiding your face from me? God can seem distant sometimes. We wonder if he knows or he cares. We look at events around the world and we wonder, is God really in control? Or we look at circumstances in our own life, the things we're going through, or we question where is God in Saul? How do these things match with God's promise to be with us always? How do these things match with our belief that our God is a God of love? Are we doubting God? Is it wrong to have these kind of thoughts? And if we have these sorts of thoughts, how should we deal with them? Well, the first thing I want you to note from this, when you find yourself wrestling with these things, is you're not the first to have these kind of issues to deal with. And neither will you be the last. These questions have been asked by godly men and women throughout the Bible and many times since then. So we could look back to Job, for example, perhaps one of the oldest books in the Bible. And there we find Job saying this. Today my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where to find him. That is God, that I might come to his seat. But I go forwards and he's not there. And backwards, but I do not perceive him. King David knew what it was to suffer. And in Psalm 13, we hear him cry out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? We see this right through to the end of the Bible in Revelation. There we see the martyrs cried out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? See, the Bible is full of people who suffered evil and experienced God's silence in the middle of it. People who in their times of trouble didn't seem to be able to find God or experience his presence. And I think there's some comfort for us in that. When we go through these times, we aren't walking an untrodden path. And the truth is, of course, that none of these people actually were forgotten by God. Even Jesus, the very Son of God, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even the Son of God knew what it was to experience the silence and distance of his Father. So there will be times, and sometimes those times can be very protracted, when it feels as if there is no God in the heavens, when it feels like God has withdrawn his presence and turned his face away. But remember this, even Jesus experienced that. And now he is at the Father's right hand and he is speaking to the Father on our behalf. He knows what it's like and he is interceding for us. That's good, isn't it? So clearly these examples tell us that we can feel distant from God even when we are walking in obedience to him. There's a bumper sticker that some of you might have seen and it says this. It says, um, if you feel distant from God, guess who moved? And the implication, of course, is that we must have moved away from God. But that's not necessarily true. Of course, we can distance ourselves from God. We can turn our backs on. Him. And if we do that, it's for us to repent, to turn around and come back. But he can and does seem distant, even from the most godly and obedient of his children at some times. So the first thing I want you to note is that many, many, God, uh, many godly men and women throughout the Bible have struggled to understand why God doesn't intervene more quickly to counter evil and why sometimes he seems so distant and silent. And the second thing then I want us to remember is that experiencing the silence and distance of God doesn't mean necessarily that we are walking in disobedience. Even the Father's most beloved and righteous servants also experience these things. <coughs> So, back to Habakkuk again. We see that he begins his complaint with the words, O Lord. He uses a word for God that emphasises God's covenant relationship with his people. And this is very important. If you look through the Bible, you won't often see the word, the word God used in isolation. You see, all the tribes that surrounded Israel, they all had their own gods. So the word God on its own really didn't mean anything more then than it does today. But God told his people his own name, Jehovah. That was a name that was too holy for the Israelites to use, so they used the word Yahweh. And that's the word that is often translated Lord in our Bibles, and that's what it is in this particular passage. This was the name, the personal name of a particular God. This was the name of the true God, the God who was almighty, the God who was faithful and kept covenant, the God who showed loving kindness. And in particular, the God who had made a covenant with his people to redeem them, to keep them, to love them and to be with them. So when Habakkuk uses the name Yahweh here, he knows who he is addressing. And I want to encourage you, when you talk about or when you talk to God, use one of his names. The word we use for God reflects the way we think about him, but it also affects the way we think about him. In our culture, the word God usually means some sort of supernatural power who's probably quite distant, impersonal, and not terribly relevant to us in our day-to-day life. But that's not the God that we worship. In the Old Testament, Yahweh was the most precious name for God. But in the New Testament, through Jesus, God has been revealed to us as Father. And that name tells us so much about what God is like. And it tells us so much about the way we can relate to him. We are adopted as sons and heirs. We are chosen and loved. So this is Yahweh, but brought to an even more intimate and personal level. So Habakkuk addresses God here as Yahweh. Habakkuk knows that God has promised to be with his people. He knows that he's not addressing a distant and uncaring God. His God is a God of love, of justice, of power. But you see, for Habakkuk, this was part of the problem. Because something for him didn't seem to fit. There was something here he wasn't able to understand, something isn't matching his expectation. And he then lists through the passage some of the things that seem to be wrong. (coughs) So he says he cries violence, but God doesn't seem to intervene. Judah was morally corrupt. There was much violence in the land. People had turned their back on God. But God wasn't doing anything about it. In fact, Habakkuk complains that he is the one who is being made to see all the wrong that is being done, while God appears to be disinterested. Habakkuk feels that he's more upset about this than God is. God seems happy to tolerate sin, and Habakkuk can't understand that. And maybe you felt the same. Seen situations that are clearly wrong, thought that perhaps you seem more bothered about it than God is. And you've questioned, why is it that he who has the power seems disinclined to use it? Well, Habakkuk felt exactly that. Destruction and violence before me said, strife and contention arise. But where is God and why isn't he acting to stop these things? Because we know that God hates wickedness. We know he's a sovereign God, yet destruction and violence continue. So he goes on. The law is paralysed. Justice never goes forth. The, right, the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And, and these things aren't just things that were in... Habakkuk's imagination these were really happening and and what he's describing still happening the law which is meant to protect the poor and the helpless often doesn't work properly that the wicked seem to get away with their actions justice isn't done and the wicked seem to prosper and these things troubled Habakkuk God didn't seem to be there he didn't seem to be acting yet he was the God who had revealed himself as the Lord the God who had made covenant with his people and I think that some of us can relate to that kind of a problem. Because I think sometimes as Christians we can experience an additional level of suffering above our physical circumstances because we think that things should be different. We bring our situation to a, to a God who we believe hears our prayers, a God who we believe loves us, a God who we believe has the power to change our circumstances, and yet sometimes he doesn't. So we wonder what's wrong. <laughs> Is it our praying? Is it our lack of faith? Have we misunderstood what God is like? And we think we wrestle with these kind of questions and we up, end up in, a, in an added state of turmoil. Well, I think Habakkuk experienced this. He wrestled with the same problems. Okay, we'll, we'll come back to that. For a moment, I just want to move on through the passage. Because that brings us to the end of Habakkuk's first complaint. And in, first, in verse 5, um, we read of the beginning of God's response. Says, look among the nations, God says, and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days which you would not believe if told. So, when you notice first that God doesn't start by rebuking Habakkuk for asking difficult questions. He doesn't tell him to be quiet and behave. Instead, he graciously answers him, and that's good, isn't it? God can cope with our distress, he can cope with our confusion, our questions, even our anger. If we will bring it to him, if we will come and face him with our problems, he will hear us. What he doesn't want is for us to turn our backs on him, to withdraw ourselves and to decide that we're better off alone. You see, you look through the Psalms and you see often David cried out to God in despair, in confusion, in pain. And yet God described David as a man after his own heart. And many of you here are married and, and and you know there are times in your married lives when you have differences with your spouse. Times of upset. And I imagine you have a, various, a variety of ways of dealing with that kind of situation. But there's one way which I think is universally hated by those on the receiving end. And that is to withdraw. To be silent. And to deny relationships. Is that right? And I think that God feels the same way. He would rather you came to him in your hurt in your confusion, even in your anger, than have you sever relationship, turn your back and walk away. So the father has heard Habakkuk's complaint and he responds. And if we look at the beginning of that response, we see that God tells Habakkuk to look out among the nations and see what God is doing, to broaden his perspective and see that he's already at work. And the work that he's doing is even greater than Habakkuk could even believe. God tells Habakkuk that his perspective is bigger, much bigger than Habakkuk's is. His understanding is much greater. You might remember Isaiah 55. Um, God says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts we have to be careful. We, we live very often with our, with our blinkers on. We just see the immediate circumstances around us. We, uh, we see our families. We see um, what we're doing, how circumstances affect us. We try and make sense of events in terms of ourselves and our understanding. And obviously we often find ourselves in a position where we just don't understand. And we forget that we're not God. We forget that our perspective is limited. That our understanding is finite. So God reminds us. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Much higher. As high as the heavens are above the earth. And that's a truth we just have to yield to. And that can be hard. But God says, I'm doing a work that you wouldn't believe even if told. He goes on to say that he's raising up the Chaldeans to bring judgment. And he describes them as that bitter and hasty nation. Dreaded and fearsome with horses fiercer than wolves, those people who seize dwellings and gather captives like sand. And Habakkuk can't understand this. He understands the words, he understands what God is saying, that he's going to use the Chaldeans to bring judgment on Judah, but he can't understand the justice of that. How can God use a more wicked nation to punish a less wicked one? The problem here isn't that Habakkuk is theologically illiterate. Far from it. He evidently knew his Bible well. He knew who God had revealed himself to be, and he understands God's character and his promises. His complaint arises precisely because what God is saying he's going to do doesn't match with his understanding of God's character and promises. And the problem isn't that Habakkuk has misunderstood those promises or God's word. He's right in all that he says about God. The problem is with the conclusions that he draws from those things. And that can be the same with us too. We know that God has revealed himself to us as Father. We know that he's a God of love. We know that he hates wickedness. We know that he's all-powerful. We know that he's a healer and a deliverer. And we're right in all of those things. But then we can draw the conclusion that therefore we shouldn't suffer or that God should intervene in specific situations, that he should put an end to evil, that he should punish the wicked. And then we struggle with these things when he doesn't seem to do what we expect him to do. So we're not struggling just with the actual suffering in whatever form that's taking. We're also struggling with the theological tensions that it generates. Now, there's no one single answer to that. But I think there's one answer which we can take from uh, the beginning of God's uh, response to Habakkuk. God tells Habakkuk, write this down. He said, what I'm going to say is very important. Make it clear, he says, for the vision, uh, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Note the repetition here. It will not lie. It will come. It will not delay. I am going to do what I say, says God. It might seem slow in coming, but I will act. So one of the theological tensions that we wrestle with has to do with timing. We want God to act now. We want him to put an end to evil and suffering now. To intervene now in Syria. To stop our pain today. But God says he will wait till the appointed time. It may seem slow in coming, but act he will. He will do what he says he will do. We don't know God's reasons for his timing, but we can be sure there are reasons and that they're good ones. But we do know that at the right time, he will act. Ultimately, of course, we know that he will judge the world, that the righteous will be vindicated. Justice will be done. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Every tear will be wiped away. Then all those tensions will be resolved. In the meantime, God is still at work but his timing is of his choosing and not of ours. Reading on a little further, we get to a, a, a very strange few verses. Strange, but very significant. So in verses 4 and 5, we read, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shoal. Like death, he has never had enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects for his own all people. So most of this passage is describing the king of Babylon. And in the following verses, God goes on to say that he will indeed um, bring judgment on him and on his nation. But sandwiched right in the middle there in verse 4, quite awkwardly, is just that, that contrast. It says, instead of judgment and death, we're told that the righteous shall live by their faith. Just one line, the righteous shall live by his faith. But it's a line which is essential for both this whole book and it's a a truth which is essential for our Christian living. Most of you are going to be very familiar with that line, of course. It's quoted three times in the New Testament, in Romans, Galatians and in Hebrews. It's evidently a very important line. So let's take ourselves a moment to remind ourselves what faith is and what it means for the righteous to live by faith. And then we'll go back and see how that fits into the story we've been looking at so far. OK, so when, when the word faith is used in connection with religion, it's often um, um, defined as meaning um, believing in something for which there is no evidence. And I'm sure you've heard that kind of usage. But faith has never meant that. And it's certainly not used that way in the Bible. The word faith carries with it a sense of Integrity of truth, of trustworthiness. If we keep these kind of words in mind, we'll have a much better idea of what the Bible is saying when it uses the word. So you consider the the statement, I have faith in my wife. You understand what I mean when I say that. You understand that I'm saying I trust her. That that I, I trust her character. That she'll do what she says she's going to do. That she won't break her promises. I'm saying I have confidence in her ability. I can rely on her. She's trustworthy and true. And we see in Hebrews, that is exactly how that is used. We see um, in Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now here we're told that having faith in God entails believing that he rewards those who seek him, that we are to believe he is true to his promises. He is trustworthy. We can completely rely on him. so, So having faith is having an active dependence on the perfect character of God. So when we're told the righteous will live by faith, we're being told that the righteous will live by completely depending on God. They will live by trusting in him, even when our reason, our understanding and our circumstances urge us to go in a different direction, to put our trust in someone else or in something else. Living by faith means having complete confidence that even if everything is falling apart around us, God will be faithful to his character and his promises. Living by faith means holding on to that fact that even in the middle of the storm, God is still in control. Now, he might still the storm or he might not. But if he's promised we're going to get to the other side, we'll get to the other side. So with that in mind, let's go back to Habakkuk. Remember that God had told Habakkuk that he was going to act, though it might be a while before anyone saw it. In fact, he was going to do something that Habakkuk wouldn't believe even if he was told. He was going to raise up a fearsome army to decimate the nation and take the people captive. So on the the face of it, there's no way way that you could construe these words as being comforting. (laughs) Habakkuk might have been upset by God's silence, but it's hard to imagine him being thrilled with God's answer either. (laughs) And that can be the same with us. But it's all very well for God to say that he's going to uh, do something beyond our comprehension or that he's going to act in some unspecified time in the future. In the meantime, we're still suffering. The, the wicked still surround us. We can't make sense of what's going on. We're still stuck in that dark place from which there seems no escape. And if our view of God is faulty, then these words are going to bring no comfort at all. And it's our view of God that is key here. If we view God as being some kind of distant and impersonal, uncaring being, or if we doubt God's faithfulness and his love, or if we're not sure that he's in control, Or if we think that we personally, and our specific circumstances, are of no importance to God, then to be told by God or by anybody else that his ways are uh, beyond our understanding, or that God is at work but we just can't see it, or that he's going to do something sometime in the future, well then those words aren't going to bring any comfort. But, if we've learned to trust God, then everything is different. If we can hold on to what the Bible teaches when it tells us in Hebrews 13 that I will never leave you or forsake you. Or in John 16 that the Father himself loves you. Or in Hebrews 2 that everything has been put in subjection to Christ. Nothing is outside his control. Or in Luke 12 that we are specifically known and valued. That even the hairs on our head are known and numbered. If we can grasp these truths and live in the good of them then we will be those who are walking by faith. We'll be those who can find assurance in um, comfort in God's assurance that he is in control, that he's working out his purposes, even if we can't see those things, even if we can't make theological sense of them, even if our specific circumstances don't seem to change. And of course, for many of us, that's much easier said than done. We like to understand what is happening. We like to be in control. We like things to be done our way. But what God is saying here is that we've got to let go of these things. We've got to let him do his thing in his time. He's asking us to trust him. And this is the place that Habakkuk came to. At the end of the second chapter, God concludes his message by saying that in contrast to the lifeless and the worthless idols, he, the Lord, is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silence before him. He reminds Habakkuk that he is alive, he is not silent, and he is on the throne. He is in charge, and those on earth should be silent and bow to his sovereignty. And Habakkuk was transformed. After all his questions and wrestling, and incidentally the name Habakkuk means the wrestler, apparently, after all his complaints and false assumptions, God heard and accepted that the covenant God was in control. That he will act in his way, in his time. Habakkuk surely didn't like what he heard and what was going to happen. But he was able to trust God anyway. His attitude changed. A submissive, reverent and joyful Habakkuk emerged. And his final prayer in the book is remarkable. So I'll just read that to you. I hear, he says... And my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble before me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail. And the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. Remember, the prophet Habakkuk lived in a rural economy. The people depended on the produce of the land for their survival. The scenario that he describes here is one of utter devastation. Figs, olives, flocks, cattle. This was their food, their livelihood, their security. For these people, everything they needed and everything they had was tied up in these things. If the crops failed and they lost their animals, they would starve. The picture that Habakkuk is painting here is as devastating as it is possible for it to be. But what is it, he goes on to say, he says that even if all of this happens, even if the worst possible case happens, even then he will rejoice in the Lord. He will take joy in the God of his salvation. So Habakkuk, in the time of his trouble, cries out to God, says to God, I don't know what is going on. Where are you? Why aren't you doing something? Why are you silent? And it's okay for us to do the same. When we're facing difficulty, suffering, uncertainty, we can bring our complaint to God. We can try and work things out. We can wrestle with the issue. That's not a problem for God. But when the dust settles, we must be able to come to a position in which we are silent. When we acknowledge and accept God's sovereignty and trust in his faithfulness and goodness. So I have an image in my mind, I don't know if I've seen it on a film or something, but it's, it's very vivid. It's of a small girl standing in front of her father, and she's angry and upset. And she's pummeling her father's chest with all her might. But when she's exhausted herself, she just leans her head forwards onto his chest. And he puts her hand round, his hand around her back and just holds her close. That's how, what God wants for us. Come to him and let him um, put his arms around us. All being well I I hope to look at the question of suffering a a bit more over uh, future um, sermons and we'll see there that God actually does tell us some of the reasons why he allows suffering, why he allows evil to continue and that can be helpful but we're never going to fully understand and and I would suggest that in our specific cases we're, we're unlikely to understand why these things are happening to us. But our instinctive reaction, our default position, must be to trust God. That's got to be our bottom line. Even if our our logic, our emotions, our, our reason, our feelings, even if all of these things point in the other direction, we must say that despite it all, we will trust our Heavenly Father. Habakkuk concludes by saying that the Lord is his strength, that God makes his feet like the deer's, able to tread on high places. I don't know if you've ever seen um, footage on television, mountain goats. Um, uh, They can climb almost vertical cliffs with, with no apparent footholds at all. It's an amazing thing to watch. Habakkuk is saying that even amidst the most extreme circumstances, God will guide him and watch over him. In the most impossible situations, God remains faithful and true. So God isn't actually silent. He's not like the, the gods of, of wood and of stone. He's, uh, he's spoken and he still speaks. Unlike those, those other gods, he's not impotent. He's not sitting passively and in, in the face of evil and suffering, unwilling or unable to act. He is at work and he will continue to work until the time he comes again. In the meantime... However dark and difficult the times are that we're facing, he wants us to hold on to his word and trust in his faithfulness. Then we'll be able to say, with Habakkuk, even though the fig tree doesn't blossom, even if the worst happens, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And that isn't necessarily going to be easy, but it's not impossible either. And so I finish with an encouragement. Day by day, bit by bit, Learn to let go and know the peace and joy that comes from allowing yourself to be held in the arms of a a father who loves you. Thank you.